Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. And as usual, if you have questions, we want to take some time as much as we can week over week to answer those questions. There's two ways you can send them into us. One is via email. The email address is info at grove.church. Put in the subject line, let's read the Bible podcast question, or you can direct message our Grove Church Facebook page. We are the Grove Church in Washington State. Uh, You can DM us there. We get those questions as well. All right. Well, this week we are going to, we're doing a a lot of wrap up. We're wrapping up Genesis. It's going to be like 15 chapters. So we're going to kind of take a 30,000 foot view level, but then we've also got some Psalms that we'll be going through. And then we have a, a really interesting question that is one of the more... I don't know. It's one of the more vexing questions of the Bible. Ooh, I guess. Vexing. That's and a fun word. I know. It's just every time it comes up, I'm always like, man, what do I think about this passage? So, but no spoilers. We'll get to that at the end. All right. So in Genesis, we're really, mostly this is actually about the life of Joseph. So in, in chapter 35, we see Jacob officially renamed Israel, which is how we're going to know all of his descendants. So from this point on, they're not called, you know, the Jacobites or the Jacobites. I don't know what you'd call it. <laughs> the Jacobites. Like, the Jacobites. <laughs> anyway, um, but they're called the Israelites, right? And it's the sons of Israel, the, the descendants of Israel. This is forever how his descendants will be known, even till this day. So pretty cool. Uh, and then we also see Isaac dying and that generation passes away. So we started off, if you remember, we can kind of divide Genesis into two halves. The first half, it's not actually half the book, but the first part of the book deals with just thousands of years of history and you're kind of just Mm -hmm. getting snippets of people's lives. And then you really zero in on Abraham, his son, his grandson, and his great-grandson is who we spend the rest of the book with. And I guess his great-great-grandsons as well. So they're all in there. Yep. But Isaac passes away. So the first two generations are gone. Now we have Jacob and his sons. So Rachel dies at this point as well. And it's interesting because we see the younger man, Jacob, who we've gotten to know, especially last week. And it's it's also funny because he wasn't actually that young, but Jacob as that's, a... That's very true. Yeah. But as, as a... Uh, we wouldn't consider him young today, but considered young, I suppose, back then. He That character is kind of gone. And now we see Jacob as more an older man. Uh, and then chapter 36... It's one of those chapters that you might be tempted to skip, but it's really cool because what it's showing is that Esau's descendants go on to become the kings of Edom. And so there's, and if you're you're thinking to yourself, Edom, that sounds familiar. Yeah, they're going to be, they come up a lot in the Old Testament. So we're going to see a ton of conflict between Israel and Edom in the coming years. And eventually it's, I should have written down which book it was, but I think it's Obadiah. Is that the one that's all about the destruction of Edom? I don't remember, but one of the minor prophet books, I believe... I'm going to commit to Obadiah. I think that's the one it is. <laughs> I could be completely wrong. Uh, but one of the one of the books of the Minor Prophets is almost entirely devoted to the destruction of the Edomites. And then in chapter 37, we are introduced to Joseph, uh, who is the favorite son of Jacob. And you know, you would think that Jacob would have learned his lesson about having favorites, given how Isaac had his favorite son, Esau. Jacob kind of resented that. But you know, he doesn't learn his lesson, generational sin and all that. So now Jacob has his own favorite son, Joseph. And then like many of God's chosen instruments, so the people in the Bible that God chooses to use, not all of them, obviously, but a lot of them, uh, we are shown that Joseph is very sensitive to dreams. 
And so he dreams about, God gives him visions in his sleep. He dreams about the future where his brothers will bow down to him. And his brothers, you know, they don't take that, they don't take that very well. No, as, which I don't think anybody would. You, if you were to tell me that you had a dream and I was bowing down to you, I'd be like, yeah, right, Evan, I'm taller than you. So anyways, but yeah, I just think it's one of those things that um, I don't know if anybody, I mean, anybody would. And Joseph, it shows his immaturity a bit too, a like little his bit, youth, because yeah. like, oh my goodness. And it's, he's probably excited about the dream and he wants to share it with his family, but uh, he just doesn't have the old, the whole what, social awareness. It's true. I understand that. Well, it's like, cause I don't have a ton. Of, I have one brother. I don't have a ton, but it'd be like, if I went to the staff and I was like, guys, I had a dream last night that all of you bowed down and respected me. It'd be like, I'm going to be the lead. It's like, get out, get out of here. I I will be the executive team guy. I don't know. Anyway, that's probably, it's probably more fitting if people actually knew you like back in the day when I was the youth pastor and you were a youth leader. Hey, but good times. A little bit different. You've matured, you've matured, you've grown. I had a dream last night that the youth leadership (laughs) team was bowing to me. Um, Anyway, so Joseph has this dream. He shares it with the family, his brothers. uh, They don't take kindly to it. And they sell him into slavery, which is really not taken kindly to it, I suppose. Yeah. So they're not they're not big fans. Um, and then eventually Joseph finds himself in the house of Potiphar, who is an Egyptian official. And Egypt at this point is, it's a big deal. Yeah, it's a powerhouse. Um, yeah. And it, it's really hard to like put it into terms because we live in a world today where there's a lot of really stable nations and like you can move a lot of different places and it's fine. Like in this point in history, there's a couple stable empires and then there's a bunch of tribes and that's kind of it and so very nomadic yep and in this period of history in that in that region i should say in in that period egypt is the thing it's the absolute powerhouse of the area so anyway he eventually finds himself in potiphar's house and potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of assault and so he is thrown in prison and he stays there for a long time But eventually, and again, this is kind of a theme in Joseph's life, he starts to interpret the dreams of other prisoners. Specifically, there's two guys that come to him. It's, uh, I should have written down, it's a baker and the cupbearer. Yeah. For fair. Good work. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Joseph, Prince of Dreams. Hey, you're two for two right now, bro. You're two for two. Oh, Obadiah was the Edomite. Obadiah was correct. Yes. Man. Two for two. Steel trap. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so these two servants of Pharaoh, they come to Joseph and they both have dreams. And then Pharaoh, not Pharaoh, Joseph has the unenviable task of (laughs) saying to one, like, hey, this means you're about to be released. And the other guy comes like, oh, cool. This means you're about to be executed. That's what the dream means. And you can imagine the guy being like, hey, that's... Well, it's funny because it went, went, uh, this dream means you're going to be restored to your position. And so then it gave courage to the uh, the baker right. is what it was. The baker had courage like, oh, okay, what do my dream mean? And Joseph was like, yeah, you're going to die. You're going to get your head cut off. Poor, like, that's what it meant. Poor baker. <laughs> like that's a, that's a rough, that's a rough go. Let me tell you. Um, but eventually, and this, a couple of years passes from this and then Pharaoh starts to be troubled by dreams. And this is kind of, it's funny because it kind of parallels Daniel a little bit. So mm-hmm. the king, the secular king, the king who does not believe in Yahweh is troubled by dreams and he can't figure out anyone to interpret it. And the cupbearer is like, wait a second, Fa- you're not going to believe I this. Know a guy. <laughs> like Pharaoh, this is, you're going to think I'm lying to you. There's a guy in prison who can do this. And so they called Joseph out and we get, uh, Pharaoh explains the dream to him and then we get this passage. So it says, and this is Genesis 41. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, you know, good call. Yeah, uh, he, right. came, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that 
of, of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Again, we're really seeing the parallels to Daniel here. Then Pharaoh <laughs> said to Joseph, behold, in my dream. I also, I want to start more conversations with behold. Like anytime I tell a story, I should just like get, it's a good word. Behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven clouds, seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in the land of Egypt. So, yeah, not great looking cows. Nope. Ugly cows. Yes, very ugly. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as in the beginning. And then I awoke. <laughs> There's a dream. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's that, that dream last night. That's a, that's a totally normal one. I also saw in my dream, so Pharaoh, yeah, he's, he's got another dream going. I also saw in my dream, seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and, it told, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Pharaoh said, then Jacob, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one, which, you know, I mean, I'm, I could have told you that. Come on. They're both seven, <laughs> seven sickly things devouring, seven healthy things. Come on, Pharaoh. You should know this. Uh, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows and the seven are seven years and the seven good years are seven years. The dreams are one, just to reiterate. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them were seven years, and the seven ears blighted by the east wind were also seven years of famine. Fun fact, east wind. It's it's a weird thing that comes up throughout the Old Testament. It's just a dry wind that comes off of kind of the desert steppe area. So according to um, basically, I don't know what you'd call it, like farmer um, superstition, the winds that came from yeah, the east would yeah, kill yeah. your crops. And then in the Bible, a bunch of times people are compared to the east wind. And so they'll say like, you're being the east wind, which basically means like you're just being worthless. So- Anyway, fun fact there. Um, and in Lord of the Rings, when Boromir dies, they sing songs about all the winds from the different directions, but they don't sing about the east wind because apparently Tolkien was like, that superstition should be in here too. So anyway, there you go, listeners. You don't need to know we, that. We made it a few weeks before Lord of the Rings reference came out. So, you know, it's, it's just a good time. Also, the east wind's in Job. So <laughs> Bildad, not Bildad, Eliphaz is called the east wind. It's a good time. Anyway, sorry. Let's get back to the story. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt, but after them will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow for it will be very severe and doubling of and the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that this thing is fixed by God and that God should bring it about. Now, therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And then let them gather all the food of these years that are coming to store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That the food shall be a reserve in the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. All right. So Joseph comes in, 
Pharaoh wants to know what his dream is. And, you know, unlike, I suppose you could say with Nebuchadnezzar, it's like a pre- it's pretty good news, all things considered, because he's like, hey, this is a warning and you're going to be fine. You just got to do what I say. And so Joseph tells Pharaoh, hey, I would appoint someone who's really wise, who you trust to oversee all of this process. And Pharaoh goes, that's an excellent point. Joseph, you're in charge. I trust you. So uh, Joseph kind of, he kind of runs the, con- the country. He's the second in command to Pharaoh. He has just immense power. And again, you can't really put it into, you can't really even put it into context today because we don't have a system of government where one person actually has this amount of power because Pharaoh has absolute power in Egypt and he's essentially given Joseph absolute power over agriculture. So it's it's insane. Uh, Joseph goes from being a prisoner in a pit where he was probably going to spend the rest of his life to being the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. Which is crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. So during this famine, or so the seven years, they're putting away everything. And then during when the famine starts up, the Egyptians have, they have plenty of food because they've been, they've been saving, they know what to do. And so Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to hopefully buy some grain because the famine isn't just localized to Egypt, it's all over the region. So Joseph's brothers traveled to Egypt. And it's kind of, it's interesting. They don't know who Joseph is. They see him, but obviously like the the cultural differences from the way that, and also the age that Joseph is, um, there's just a bunch of things where they don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes who they are. And so there's a bunch, I don't want to get into everything because we kind of have to take this at 30,000 feet, but suffice to say, Joseph tests his brothers. He wants them to go get his actual like full brother because most of the sons of Jacob are Joseph's half brothers. Mm-hmm. Only Benjamin is his, is his whole brother. Um, they bring Benjamin back. Joseph tests them again. He plants a coin inside of Benjamin's sack. They take him outside. They're like, hey, he stole, and they're going to go throw Benjamin away. And then we get this speech uh, from Judah, which really shows how much the brothers have grown since they first sold Joseph into slavery. So this is in Genesis chapter 44, and starting in verse 30, it says, now therefore, as, and sorry, this, there's a whole big speech that we're not going to read the whole thing. This is the ending of the speech. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up, as his life is bound up in the boy's life. So he's saying, as soon as we come back to Jacob without Benjamin, he's, he's, the, it will kill him. The yeah. grief will kill him. As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For the servant became a pledge... For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see evil that would find find my father. So really interesting passage because here's what, there's a couple things that's showing. Number one, Judah's being incredibly selfless here. And he's saying, take me instead of my brother. He's having some integrity. He's being a man of his word, which again, we can't get into everything, but it's kind of showing how he's grown from the Judah and Tamar story as well, where all of a sudden, like he is standing by the things that he said. And he has accepted <laughs> that he's not his father's favorite, if that makes sense. So he's there, there's no, they sell Joseph into slavery essentially because he runs his mouth off, but also because he is so overtly Jacob's favorite son. Um, with In this passage, we see that they accept that Benjamin is the favorite. Judah knows that if they come back and Judah's missing, Jacob's going to be fine. But if Benjamin missing, is missing, he's not. Um, but he loves his father 
more. Mm-hmm. And he wants, he, he cannot stand to grieve the heart of his father, even if there is still some lingering pain from what that means. So it's, it, it, it's, it, we talk about it a lot, but it's a, it's a really incredible growth moment that sometimes we skip over the, the details of it just because, you know, we want to see it at the 30,000 foot level. Yeah. And I think you also see the picture of, um, the story with Joseph, with what they did with Joseph, there was a lot of ignorance or there was a lot of also lack of awareness in regards to what the the ripple effect was going to be. They didn't think about it. It's very selfish in that moment with Joseph, but it's also very selfless in this moment because they didn't think about how, how Isaac was going to respond. I'm sorry, Jacob was going to respond. They didn't, they didn't think about that. All they thought about was if we get rid of him, then we will gain favor with our father. And their father was completely heartbroken and like, devastated and grieved for a long time. And so there is this awareness of like, even exactly what you said, man, this isn't, this is the state of our, I can't put this on my dad anymore. I got to, we've we've got to protect and care for our own. Uh, And then you see this regret Mm -hmm. in in his response to Joseph about what they do to him. Now it's crazy because of uh, Joseph is the whole time understanding what's going on. He, he knows that his brothers, he can, that's that's why the, the way that um, Benjamin got, kind of set up and the way that the brothers got set up, that's why it played out the way it did is because Joseph, he, he wanted to guarantee another encounter with his brothers um, because there is this significant moment to it. So, um, but it is, you see this fascinating growth, which I would hope all of us would, would navigate to, but um, just in the different, I guess the dichotomy of responses right. um, that Judah, Judah and his brothers showed. Well, it's interesting too, because Judah takes a real leadership role in this moment, even though Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are actually older yeah. than him. Uh, Judah, the fourth son, is kind of the one who rises up to become the leader. And we'll see that because um, all of the good kings of Israel come from the line of Judah. Um, so there you go. I mean, I guess it's just Spoiler. Saul, no, just but all the good kings of Judah, I should say. But anyway, sorry, that's outside the point. We got to get going, listeners. So... To wrap it up, uh, Joseph sends everyone away except for his brothers, and then they weep together, they cry, um, and then Joseph reconciles with his brothers. Really beautiful moment. And then Jacob brings his whole family down to live in Egypt, which for the, a moment is a good thing. Um, you know, for the rest of Genesis, it's a good thing. Well, yes. when, we start, when we start Exodus, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, but we see as the book winds down... Jacob again is an old man, and there's a really cool chapter where he just blesses all of his son. It's sons. It's in written in poetic. Um, I don't know what's called poetic diction. Anyway, you'll go through it. He takes the time to bless all of his sons. In contrast to Isaac, who only wanted to bless one son, Jacob actually is not forced into blessing two, or not forced into blessing not both deceived. of his sons. Yeah, he is not deceived into it. He wants to bless all of his sons. Yeah. Um, and then he dies, and he's buried with Abraham. He's buried in the same tomb where Abraham and Sarah. Isaac and Rebecca are bearing, buried. And then interestingly, he's buried with Leah, the wife who he did not want and what? the wife who he loved less. So we, for we more, could spend so much time just I, talking it, about that dynamic. For but. more on that, check out our Leah episode from last year. Uh, you know, I was about to say it's really good, but that's kind of arrogant, but we, yeah, it's, it's a really good story. Yeah, it, hits so. some, it hits some of those, those nuances that we are alluding, are alluding to, but don't have time to jump into. Yep. And before we get into uh, Aaron's Psalms to wrap up Genesis, Aaron, he didn't write the Psalms. Sorry, he's going to be talking oh, I did. about I'm going to sing them. <laughs> but I'm just kidding. Uh, these are the last few verses of the book. It says, so Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years and Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the th- of the third generation. The children also of, of Makir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. 
And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Also interesting because he follows the burial rites of the Egyptians. He's embalmed as opposed to what we would see um, later on where that's not a part of the burial process. So there you go. That's the end of Joseph's life. And finally, before we jump into our second section today, do us a favor, leave us a five-star review on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify now. Yeah. We, we can confirm that you can leave reviews there. So yes. do us a favor. It just helps get the podcast out there to more people. And if you write a review, we'll read it on the show just because, you know, that's the kind of guys we are. Yep. We're just appreciative. Appreciate it. So uh, we'd love for you to do that. Um, just so you know, I learned this today about Spotify is they're not going to show any rating until there's a certain amount of, of ratings given. So I jumped on and gave it a rating um, five star because I like our podcast that much. So it's like the in presidential elections, you can vote for yourself. It's true. So, so, you can review so we definitely podcast. reviewed ourselves. So I didn't put a written review, but that way we don't have to read it. So, uh, but yeah, so we're jumping into the Psalms and what we're going to see throughout this plan over the course of the next, uh, I guess, 11 months now is that there will be different Psalms kind of trickled in throughout the uh, reading plan. Uh, we will cover all 150 Psalms uh, throughout the year, but uh, so every now and then, every some of our podcasts will take some time to dive into them. And so today we're going to dive into four Psalms uh, because we're going to be reading through them this week. Um, we're going to hit Psalm 123, 124, Psalm 1, and then Psalm 42 in that order. Uh, and so I'm just going to kind of give us a quick highlight over the entire book of Psalms because it is written, the Hebrew text divides it into five different books um, regarding just book 1, 2, 3, and 4, and 5. Um, and each Psalm that ends in one of these books, uh, it finishes with the doxology, which is this, if, if you're anything like me, when I first started in the, uh, the Bible study world, I didn't know what doxology was, uh, but it's just this formula, liturgical formula of praise to God. That's what it is. That's what doxology is. So each one of these Psalms at the end of the books, and that's specifically Psalm 41, Psalm 72, Psalm 89, Psalm 106, and Psalm 150, they all end with a formula of praise to God. Um, in essence, so that's when they were putting the canon together. They were able to uh, kind of work through the Psalms themselves to put them in that order. Um, but each book is going to end that way. Uh, Psalm 123 and 124 are included in what's called the Songs of Ascent. Um, in essence, these are Psalms that would have been sung or recited together in the community of God's people as they pilgrimaged to Jerusalem for corporate worship. Um, so it's in essence, as they're ascending to Jerusalem, they're worshiping through these Psalms together. So we're going to hit two of those this week, Psalm 123 and 124. They both carry a different kind of theme to them. Uh, and you'll see that through the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, 123, just to hit it real quick, is this idea of a community to lament. So as the people were heading back to Jerusalem to worship God, uh, they they would have been navigating different thoughts of uh, objects of scorn or contempt. Um, so they'd be, they'd not just ask for safe passage back to Jerusalem, but they're also, um, believing God to, uh, bring relief from the scorn they feel. Um, and as Christians, it's one of those things like I've heard it said this way about the book of Psalms. You want to learn to pray, read through Psalms. Yeah. Um, and it really is a very dynamic and powerful reality to recognize that all of our emotional experiences as humans, um, are portrayed at different moments and glimpses in the Psalms. And they oftentimes refer back to still deciding to praise God. 
Um, the majority of the Psalms do that. So Psalm 123 is that Psalm of lament, uh, community lament. That's a song of ascent. 124 is the same song of ascent, but it carries a Thanksgiving vibe. Uh, that's like a hymn that they would all praise, praise God for, um, seeing God deliver them from threat or perceived threat or threats that they were feeling. They would, it was a response to God's provision and deliverance there. Well, it kind of reminds me of, I think, I think sometimes we don't, we don't view the dark times of life and history as opportunities to worship. Yeah. And I think it's really cool that during the Songs of Ascent, as they're traveling to Jerusalem, that that's, and it's going to end on an ultimately hopeful moment, they're remembering the times where they had failed, yeah. where it looked dark. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of, we're coming out of the Christmas season a little bit, um, but with Advent. And I think yeah. a lot of times as, as modern Christians, we, we don't really focus on that idea of the longing for a savior and how desperately we needed yeah. the birth of Christ. We're kind of just like, we love Christmas and we love the celebration of it, but I think they kind of go hand in hand. That's why I love, you know, come thou long expected Jesus or O come, O come Emmanuel or great songs about the darkness that the world was in and the need for a savior. Yeah. And then, yeah. So the, there you go. I, that's my two cents. Well, and I think it's really easy to get, to think, think that we we it's easier to praise god in the good times than the bad times but i'll be honest with you it's easy to forget god in the good times and complain to god in the bad times and what psalms teaches and what psalms allows us to do is to be drawn into this soulful uh and i'm not talking like gospel soul i'm talking about our soul like a soul level conversation and dialogue with god and and to to air our grievances and to air our frustrations but to air our our concerns and our anxieties and our worries. And, uh, and at the same time, also be reminded of, man, God, you are so faithful. Um, and so, and that's what I think I like about the songs of ascent specifically is because it's as they're on their way to Jerusalem, it's, these are things that they would sing corporately and sing to, whether it was their family unit going together, or it was a larger group of God's people just pilgrimaging together back to Jerusalem to worship. These things would be recited often. Um, and it's almost as if today there's different songs that you, someone can start singing and then other people start joining in. Um, it is this, this, someone mm-hmm. would sing a line and people would reflect and remember back to the exact Psalm. So, um, but that, so we're going to hit those two Psalms out of the songs of ascent this week. Um, we're also going to hit Psalm 42, uh, which is, I would say is probably a very well-known Psalm, at least the very beginning of it, uh, because it carries us as the deer pants for the water. So my soul longs for you. Great song. Um, one of my favorite songs as a kid growing up, even to this day, I'll hear it. And I'm just like, yes. Um, and, and some scholars believe that 42 and 43 actually might have originally gone together, um, but they also can be read very well separately. Uh, so you see them separated in the, in, in the canon of scripture. Uh, it's this picture of like this desire to, and longing to go back to God's presence. Um, the singer who's singing it will be lamenting his circumstances um, that are preventing him from attending worship sanctuary, which was interesting to me. And I had not read that before. Um but I want to like talk about the last two years right. and the reality of, uh, I, I hear this almost weekly now of, it's just so good to be back in person. Um, a phrase I would have never thought would have been part of my regular rhythm of communication. Uh, are you in person or are you on like <laughs> online or whatever? Um, but it's just this idea, like this longing to go back uh, into the presence of God, to worship him in the sanctuary. Um, and not that we call it a sanctuary here at the Grove Church, but because it's, it's a little bit different, but the idea of Psalm 42 hinges on this, it, it reveals this depth and this longing to worship God again in his presence. And there's things preventing them, circumstances preventing them from being able to attend a worship service. Um, 
And so it's, it's pretty relevant, I think, uh, to the last two years of our lives. Uh, but it is. It's a powerful psalm that I, I'm looking forward to getting into this week uh, as we read through it. But I would just encourage you, read it slowly uh, and, and allow the Holy Spirit to kind of remind you of his presence, his goodness, his faithfulness, even in the midst of absence. Well, and it kind of reminds me too of, I think there's there's a part where we can identify with the psalmist of, you know, we, we miss corporate worship. We miss being mm-hmm. able to be together. But there's also a part where I think Jesus fulfilled some of the longing in Psalm 42, where because under the old covenant, God's presence was so concentrated in the yeah. temple. Um, it is true that you could be separated by from God's presence in that way. Um, but today we're, we're never separated yeah. from God's presence. Good so point. even, even in the midst of, cause I remember, you know, like those, it's specifically those first few months of 2020 where it was really just like crazy lockdowns. Um, who knew what we could do? While we were separated from each other and we weren't able to corporately worship together in the way that we did, unlike the psalmist in Psalm 42, we're not actually separated from God's presence, yeah. which is really cool. Yeah, good point. And great. And it's, I think it'll be a great reflection and moment for us this week as we read through it. Um, one of the other Psalms we're going to hit that I, I want to kind of take a few more moments on is Psalm 1. Uh, this is actually one of the first Psalms I memorized in college. Um, and I didn't know what, why at the time until later on. Uh, cause either I didn't pay attention to my professor. He never actually told us, um, it's probably more my fault than his fault. Just saying, uh, but this is Psalm one. Um, and, and it's, it's important to realize and know this about Psalm one. This is like the, the launch and entry point to the entire book of Psalms. It's the introduction. There's no author, um, that has been attributed to, uh, but this is what's, what's oftentimes viewed as Psalm one and two are, are the launch to the book of of Psalms, the entirety of it. Um, and, and side note, Psalm 150 doesn't just end the doxology for that fifth book, but it actually also puts a, a book end to the entire book of Psalms as well. And so you've got Psalm 1 who launches us, Psalm 150 that'll end us. We're not reading that one this this week, obviously, but um, it's, it's interesting because this Psalm carries with it an implication that those singing it will do so owning its values. Um, in essence, it means that they will want to more and more to be people who love God's law and believe it. And they'll see themselves as heirs and stewards of its story and redemption of redemption and hope uh, and seek to carry out its moral requirements. So those who are singing, it's this intro to the book of Psalms and those who are singing or referring or reciting the words of Psalm one, it's, it's almost as if people are owning it, this, that they're, they're, it's not just lip service, which I know is really easy to to do in any gathering today. You sing through the songs without thinking about the words. I do that all the time with different radio songs or yeah. uh, even secular songs. I love music. And so the music captivates me. And then I realize later, like the songs that I'm actually listening to aren't necessarily the best. And so I have to stop listening to them because of that. Um, but it really is this implication on Psalm 1 that, that when you read it, I want to challenge and encourage you like to reflect on the fact of, am I willing to own what the psalmist is saying, um, there's in this in, in this understanding of ownership, this implied delight uh, of those who read it, um, and their conclusion in their inclusion as being part of the righteousness of God, um, and that there's this awareness that comes that with that ownership and understanding of inclusion in God's people, um, that nothing can compare to the joy and the happiness that exists in being God's people. Um, and then at the end of the psalm, we'll see this this moment where uh, the the author reminds people there's only really two ways to live, righteous or wicked. 
Uh, and so this is the tension of the psalm. And I actually want to read through it uh, before I kind of wrap it up. But uh, it says this. It's six verses long. This is the launch and the introduction to the book. Um, and it carries this weight of as we read it, it's, it's am I willing to own this and what are the benefits of owning it? And it's not just the happiness and joy, but it's also the righteousness and the right standing with God. Uh, but it says this, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a pl- tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. And this is how the psalmist opens up the book of Psalms. And he paints this picture, or she paints this picture of righteousness and wickedness. And in, over the next 150 chapters, if you will read this book from start to finish, you will engage and wrestle through this tension of what it means to be righteous. And the prayers that come out of it are so powerful and, po- and potent that I think are really, really good. Um, that was just a redundant sta- statement. because Powerful and potent. potent. Hey, Same conversation. It's good alliteration, but though. But anyways, all that to say, um, so Psalms is going to be, I think it's going to be a fun read to trickle in over the next you know 11 months, but um, really, really incredible, powerful stuff that I think is going to be good. And I hope it helps deepen our prayer life. Oh, for sure. All right. Well, let's get to our question today, which is this. Where in your podcast did you cover Luke 16, 1 through 9? It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, listener, you're not alone. <laughs> so I actually don't remember if we ever covered this, but that's I'm awesome. sure we've talked about it at some point. I didn't see the question until just now. So oh, there you go. Uh, that's uh, awesome. All right. So let's, we're going to read a parable and then we're going to talk about it. Uh, so this is Jesus talking, obviously. He says, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in your account of management for you can no longer be my manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, Summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to them, first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down and quickly write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of the world who are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. All right. This is a weird... <laughs> it's so true. This is a weird chapter. So we're going to talk about it here for a little bit. Um, number one, I think it's important to say that there is one thing that the master commends his, his manager on, 
it's his shrewdness. So yeah, right. I think I think it's very important to point out that like Jesus is not saying here like, and so if you are getting fired, steal money from your master. What you so <laughs> I think the way and this was pointed out to me. I thought it was really interesting. Um, the Gospel Coalition has a good article on this. Is one of the things I looked up when I was researching this, but. They talk about how both the master and the servant are actually being unrighteous in the story. And it's because uh, most likely what the master is committing here is usury. And so the reason that the manager would actually have outsmarted the master is because the master knows that he can't go publicly and say that these debts have been, uh, these debts are false and try and recreate them because he knows that then all of a sudden he'll be charged with charging people exorbitant interest and things like that. So that's one interpretation that I think I actually kind of line up with. And so when the master commends him for his shrewdness, it's not this, it's not this moment where the master says, you know what? Well done, my good and faithful servant. It's almost basically the master saying, all right, well you win this round or all right, you've, you've outwitted me for this. Um, so the point of it is, I suppose you could say, uh, know what's coming and have a plan. And so the manager knows that he's about to lose everything. And so he uses wealth to make friends. He uses wealth in a way to actually to help people, which is kind of a weird thing, but he's he's helping the debtors of his master in the hopes that they will receive him into the house when he's left homeless, which yeah. we kind of assume from the story that that is what ends up happening. Yeah. Um, and in the same way, what Jesus is saying afterward, and I think you have to pair it with the ending passage where he says, you cannot serve both God and money. Because um, while... The manager is dishonest. What does he use the money for? Well, he uses the money to build relationships mm -hmm. at the very end. And so he uses the money. And again, it's weird because he has a very selfish motivation. Like his motivation is, I don't want to be on the streets. And so you can't necessarily look at his motivation. But what he does is he uses the money as a tool to build relationships and to help people. And this is what we see very much in the early church, where what do the early Christians use their money for? And with much more pure motives than this manager, they use their money to help others. They use their money to build up relationships. Yeah. So that's kind of my thoughts on it. No, I think those are good thoughts. And I think they're, I mean, I would, at first glance, just my, my immediate thought was always shrewd. Like it's, Jesus is not saying um, to cheat people. Uh, and, and some of the context, I think you've already alluded to it. Like they didn't always, um, act properly. They were always cheating. Anybody handling finances or money was always looking out to find and make kind of a, make a way for themselves and cheat people out of money. And so the shrewd manager who got fired, um, was doing just that. And so when he knew he was getting, he, he tried to build a relationship and in essence, secure a place for him outside of. Once he was fired, and that's the same thing. So that way, he would be welcomed into the house. Um, it, it is interesting. There is a there's a website called Got Questions, Got Questions, Biblical Answers, um, and and one of the things that I, I thought was interesting in reading this was uh, the term unrighteous or worldly wealth seems to strike readers the wrong way. But Jesus is not saying that believers should gain wealth unrighteously and then be generous with it. Unrif unrighteous in reference to wealth can refer to one the means in acquiring wealth, two the way in which one desires to use the wealth. Or three, the corrupting influence wealth can have that often leads people to commit unrighteous acts. Given the way in which Jesus employs the term, the third explanation seems the most likely. Wealth is not inherently evil, but the love of money can lead to all sorts of sins. Um, and so Jesus is using it as a, a parable to provide um, tension to wrestle through the idea of wealth and what, what's our motivation behind wealth. The shrewd manager was trying to secure in essence, a job for him outside of his master because yeah. he was getting laid off. Um, and he was doing it 
in a manner that um, cheated out his master, but actually brought favor to other people. Um, but I think that that was one of the things that, but it's what Jesus is saying is like, is not saying go cheat people out of money so that way you provide for yourself. He's saying, be careful how you're, how you're viewing money. Be careful how you're managing money because the love of money is the root of all evil kind of, kind of thing. And so it's just interesting that tension of you can't serve both masters. And so, um, that's, that's kind of what I would say. It's totally confusing. And I do agree with, uh, the website that, um, the word unrighteous is kind of off-putting. Uh, but understanding what comes on money, there's kind of three different ways it's referred to by Christ. And so it's just guarding and watching against the motivation, I think. All right. Well, there you go. That might not be the most satisfactory answer, but hopefully that helps out. Uh, this is one of the more <laughs> notoriously difficult passages. And there's there's a bunch of different interpretations you could take yeah, on this. Sure. And I wouldn't, uh, you know, we talk about open-handed and close-handed issues. This is very open-handed. <laughs> if, yep. Like if you come at it from a different angle, like I won't, I won't argue with it, yep. you at all. All right. Well, with that being said, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. We are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find a bunch of other stuff on our website, grove.church. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on the website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. But with all that being said, we will see you all next week. Have a great day.